Well, good morning, North Wake. Our oldest child, Hunter, uh, got married a month ago. Uh, he, he married a beautiful and godly young woman uh, named Priscilla, who he met in Vegas, where he's currently stationed in the Air Force. Uh, we have a picture uh, behind me of, uh, of the wedding. And as my daughter, she is quickly finding out that there are certain things that is required of a mason. Okay? She went on a honeymoon, and they came back and stayed with us for about five days. And here's an example. We began to disciple her on all the sayings that she was supposed to know as a mason. Okay? The first one is, is if you ask a mason who was in your kindergarten class, we will say James, John, Penny, Winnie, Dickie, Horn, Ole, Arthur, Arthur Murray, Wenzel, Zuzel, Zuzel, Zam, Palem, Squalem, Tada, Squalem, John Butts. What? Exactly. Who said that? What? Where does this come from? I don't know. But my grandparents would say it. My parents would say it. Shelly and I will say it. Hunter and Brooklyn will say it. And pretty soon, Priscilla will say it. So you guys know how to pray for Priscilla, our new daughter-in-law. Not only that, if we see a possum laying dead on the side of the road, we will say P-O-S-M-E-Y-A-T-E-R, S-O-P-N-T-Y-T-A-T-E-R, possum, sop, and tater. What? <laughs> Where does this come from? Oh, goodness. We're a weird family. Now she knows what she's married into. We didn't tell her all of this until after the vows <laughs> had been said. But not only do we have these kind of weird, crazy sayings that really have no origin or no meaning to them, uh, we have stories that are imparted to us growing up that were intended to carry a moral or a story or a value to them. Uh, one of those was uh, when me and my two brothers uh, would, mainly my two brothers, not me, would struggle with lying. My dad would remind us of a story. He would tell us a story about our granddad who, when he was newly married to my grandmother, went down to the car dealership to buy a truck. Found the truck he wanted and he actually wanted to su surprise uh, my grandmother by driving it home to her. I, I don't know how excited she would have been about the surprise of my granddad buying a new truck, but nonetheless, he wanted to buy this new truck. And the story goes that the salesman said, you, well, you can't take the truck home. It's a Saturday. Uh, banks are closed. And, and car dealership and things went down much differently than they do uh, today back then. Well, as the story goes, the owner of the dealership comes out and somehow he recognizes something in my grandfather and says, do you know a guy named Nat Mason? Don't you love these old names, Nat? That's my great-grandfather's name, Nat. He said, yeah, actually, he's, he's my father. And so he, supposedly the owner looks to the salesman and says, let him take that truck home. His word is good here. Somehow, some way, my great-grandfather had established a uh, notoriety of being a man of integrity, that he was honest at all of his dealings with that. And so my dad would tell me and my brothers this story in hopes that we would strive to be men of integrity, that it would impart that value into us. And today, when I'm reminded of that story, I think of Jake, be a man of integrity. Let your word be as valuable as a sign written contract. And so today, I, I think we find ourselves in a similar situation. 
in a very familiar parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It is arguably one of the three most recognizable parables in the Bible. And there's a, there's a danger with being so familiar with a story that you come here today and you hear, oh, it's the parable of Good Samaritan. I can kind of check out on listening today. But that's not the point of a recognizable story. The point of a familiar story is to remind you of a truth, something that you are supposed to live out. It comes alongside of a biblical truth in hopes that you will put it into practice. So instead of checking out, I would encourage you highly to listen intently and be reminded of what we are supposed to live out like I am when I'm reminded of that story about my granddad at the car lot. So pray with me. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here together today and open up your word. Father, I pray as we read it, as we study it, that we would not just know things about you, but we would be transformed, that we would live differently in response to your word. So help us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. This is where we will find the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10 will be beginning in verse 25. I'll give you a minute to turn there in your Bibles. Luke 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So right away, we're introduced to a lawyer. Now, when you and I hear lawyer, we naturally think attorney, but this man is not an attorney. He is an expert in the law. He is an expert in the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So he's better described as a scribe. So this expert in the scriptures, this scribe, he stands up and tries his best to stump the teacher, Jesus. And even though his question is a good one, how am I saved? We know that his question is not an earnest question. Because the author, Luke, inserts a comment about the scribe's motivation. He writes that it was to put Jesus to the test. One of my great joys uh, serving here at North Wake is the opportunities I get to teach in our life change fellowship class, basically our Sunday school classes. It's a unique teaching and learning environment um, where it allows people to engage the scriptures or engage the topic being discussed. Uh, it's not like this where it's a monologue. I speak and you listen. No, they get to contribute. They get to ask questions. They get to ask and make comments, insert ideas. It's highly interactive, and I actually think it's one of the best ways to mature as a believer. Best ways for us to grow in our faith. And it's perfect when I'm talking about this because this morning we're starting a new semester of our Life Change classes. And so if you're just now arriving at 1045, I want to highly encourage you to go and show up at 9 o'clock and participate in one of our two life change classes that we offer. One is called Abide in Me, where we get to grow in our communion with the Lord. How do we live in Christ? And then the other class is called Way and Wisdom, which is a study through the book of Proverbs. And so I highly encourage you to go to these classes and take advantage of this opportunity to grow in 
your faith. But one of the things with these classes is because they're so highly interactive is that there are times where a student will t- try to stump me, the teacher. He will ask me a question and he wants to know how I will respond to that question. And this is a similar situation to where we find ourselves in our passage this morning in the opening verse. The passage says that the scribe stood up, which infers that he had been sitting down before that. So Jesus is in a situation where he is most likely teaching a large crowd. And so this listener, this student, stands up and tests Jesus, his teacher. So how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 26. And he says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? I love how Jesus responds. If you are a teacher in the church or preparing to be one, learn from Jesus' example here. Jesus asked the man what the Bible says. He asked the scribe to answer his own question by his own study of the word, his own reading of the scripture. And it's interesting, Jesus, who is the word, asked the scribe to find his answer in the word of God. I find it amazing that the only human who could give his answer and it be the word of God chose to default and defer to God's written word. I think this teaches us something significant about the Bible. It's importance and it's authority in every believer's life. So the question is, is it your authority? Do you study it to find answers to your own questions, to your own struggles? Do you know it? Do you meditate on it? Do you memorize it? For it is the only place where you and I can find objective truth to some of life's most important questions. So how does this expert in the law answer Jesus? Look at verse 27 and 28. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So this expert in the law cites Deuteronomy 6.5 plus Leviticus 19.18. Now Deuteronomy 6.5 is part of what is called the Shema, which simply means here. And it begins a section of scripture in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which every good Jew would recite and pray every single day, twice a day. And Jesus would use this same combination when he was asked what the greatest commandment was. And you probably remember Matthew 22, if you want to flip there. If not, it'll be on the screen. Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40 reads, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. Sound familiar? So our expert in the law answers his own question by citing what Jesus would define as the two great commandments. Love God, love God others. And here we see with great clarity all three circles of our devoted series, which is illustrated on the slide that we have up every Sunday. We are to love God with our whole being, 
heart, soul, strength, and mind. And we are to love our neighbor, which consists of those in the church and those outside the church. And these loves, as you can see in the illustration, are inseparable. Daryl Bach writes this, Devotion to God is expressed by devotion to others, so that there is no distinction between devotion to God and treatment of other people. They go together. And so with this answer from the lawyer, Jesus offers the scribe a command and a promise. He says, do this and you will live. So at this point, the stump the teacher question has been answered. But notice that the man is not finished. Look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now once again, the author and narrator Luke injects a comment about the scribe's motivation. He tells us that the scribe's desire was to justify himself, to show, to vindicate, to exhibit, or to prove his own righteousness. This man wanted to confirm his salvation. He wanted to know, had he done enough? Had he loved at least the few people who were considered his neighbors? Did he meet the minimal requirements? His hope was that the neighbors that Jesus would identify would have been the ones that he had lawfully loved. Maybe he was hoping that Jesus would say, this guy, will slide behind me. You can't get through a sermon on love your neighbor without Mr. Rogers, right? Would you be my, could you be my, my neighbor? Or for the younger crowd, maybe, maybe this guy, Mr. Robinson from Saturday Night Live. How often do you get to quote something from Saturday Night Live in a sermon? But no, it was neither one of these guys. The, the, the scribe was really probably hoping that Jesus would identify a group of people within his own Israelite community. For most Israelites believed that you only had to love God's chosen people. In the Sirach, an ancient Jewish book of wisdom, it actually reads this, Give to the godly man and help not a sinner. And since religion was closely tied to the nation of Israel, they actually believed that people outside their own ethnicity were non-neighbors. Now before we ridicule them, I wonder if we ever struggle with this. How do we ever struggle, uh, how do we ever try to meet the minimal requirements of the law? Do we somehow love fellow believers at the expense of those outside our own community of faith? Do we struggle with a double standard? By the way that we live, do we reveal that we actually believe that there's a category called non-neighbors, those that don't require the same level of love? But as we will soon see, we are called to love our neighbors, not create a category of non-neighbors. We are to love regardless of color, ethnicity, social status, religious affiliation, gender, etc., etc. We are to love all. So how does Jesus reply? He tells a story, a parable, which from our opening illustration, if you remember, was cast alongside a truth to illustrate a point and drive it home. 
So let's read this parable in hopes of the point being driven deep into our hearts so that we think and feel and act like Jesus wants us to think and feel and act. Verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So the first thing we notice in a story is that we are introduced to this unidentified man traveling on this, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this stretch of road was known as being extremely dangerous. I actually found a photo. I, I like to look at pictures that help me get an idea of what's going on in the story. So you can see from this story behind me, it was approximately 17 miles long, and it dropped 3,300 feet in elevation over those 17 miles. It was winding and rocky and full of caves where thieves could easily hide. So this man gets jumped, he gets stripped of his clothes, and he is beaten half to death. But even after telling these tragic events, hope is introduced into the parable. Verse 31 begins with this hopeful phrase, now by chance. And it continues in its hopefulness as we hear that by chance it is a priest that's coming down the road. He is a holy man, a servant of God. Surely he will help. He will come to the rescue. But the story takes another tragic turn when this holy man, even though he sees him, passes the battered man on the opposite side of the road. He gets as far away as possible. Now many have speculated as to the reasons why the priest would do such a thing and not help. They guess maybe he was concerned about touching a dead body and becoming unclean. Maybe because of these teachings in the Sirach, maybe he didn't see the need in helping a sinner. Maybe he was concerned about being robbed himself and injured himself. But this is simply guesswork. It would be conjecture because there is nothing in the text that supports these explanations. The point is that the, the priest provided no help. So as it reads, without any good reason, the priest passes by this half-dead man in desperate need. Now the parable continues with a second man, this time a Levite, and again hope is introduced. For a Levite was basically a priest's assistant, again a religious man. Surely he will help. But if you look at the passage, he simply responds in like fashion and does not aid this man in his greatest time of need. 
the two most probable heroes in the story actually turn out to be villains. Now, the way this story is progressing, Jesus' hearers would have anticipated the next person on the scene to be an Israelite layman. So in our context, it would be like moving from pastor to small group leader to church member. Leon Morris writes, they would almost certainly now be anticipating an anti-clerical clerical twist to the story. But Jesus shockingly inserts a Samaritan into the story. And you may be wondering, what's so shocking about a Samaritan? Why would that have shocked Jesus' hearers? Well, let me give you a little history. There was great animosity and hatred between Jews and Samaritans. Daryl Bach comments, Samaritans were a mixed race of Israelite and non-Israelite blood who were despised by many pure-blooded Israelites because they believed that Samaritans had compromised the faith. These two people shared little in common but a history of division. Eating with a Samaritan was equated with eating pork. Such people were unclean and to be avoided. We see this highlighted in John chapter 4, verse 9, where the Samaritan woman at the well responds to Jesus by saying this, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? And then this comments there, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Again, Bach notes, the idea of a good Samaritan was an oxymoron to a Jew. Good and Samaritan were two things that just didn't go together, like a jumbo shrimp or a Dodge Ram. They just don't go together. Think about that later. But as we read, the unlikely hero is the Samaritan. Notice what happens as he comes close and he sees this helpless half-dead man. Jesus tells us that he has compassion. Neither the priest nor the Levite had compassion, but the Samaritan does. And I'll be honest with you, I think this one word, this single motivation, this highlighted affection is critical to understanding the parable. I think you see that it is compassion that moves this Samaritan to show concern and care for the injured man. And it is the same compassion that moved Jesus to help others as well. Listen to these few verses, these few selected passages that highlight Jesus' compassion for others that moves him to action. When he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick when he went ashore he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things and then in Luke 12 and he drew near to the gate of the town and behold a man who had died was being carried out the only son of his mother and she was a widow And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. 
Then he came up and touched the bier, which is the coffin, and the bears stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. You see, Jesus is a compassionate Savior, and it is compassion that sets this Samaritan apart from the other two men in Jesus' parable. And look at verses 34 and 35, and I want you to notice how compassion moves this Samaritan to action. There's about seven acts of compassion that are noted here in verses 34 and 35. First, instead of moving to the opposite side of the road, compassion moves the Samaritan toward the injured man. Second, compassion moves him to bandage the man's wounds. The oil would have eased the pain and the wine would have acted as an antiseptic. Three, compassion moves him to put the man on his mule, which meant that from here on out the Samaritan would be walking. Fourth, compassion moves him to take the man to a hotel where he cares for him. Fifth, compassion moves him to give the hotel manager what is approximated to about two days' wages which according to experts would have covered about one to two months of stay in the end. Compassion moves him to voluntarily commit to covering any and all additional medical bills. And then seventh and finally, compassion moves him to plan a return to check in on the injured man. So it was compassion that moved the Samaritan to take these Tangible measures of care. You see, true compassion requires action. Compassion without action is not compassion at all. Think about this. To feel compassion means that you are actually aware of someone's plight. You know they are hurting. And to know that someone is hurting and in desperate need... And to do nothing, assuming that you have the ability to help, reveals that you really don't care for them at all. Imagine having a family member or a neighbor who has been diagnosed with terminal cancer, and somehow, some way, you find the cure for cancer, and to not offer that cure to them. To not share such a cure would be wrong, would be unloving. And would be downright hateful. You see, being a compassionate neighbor requires tangible actions. It requires sacrifice. And even though you'll notice the Samaritan was willing to help out financially, he didn't simply throw money at the, at the problem. He got personally involved. He was willing to put himself at risk to help another in need. Even someone who was different than him and probably had significant animosity towards him. So church, what are you willing to give up? What are you willing to do without to be a good neighbor? Are you willing to put yourself and your future at risk to help someone else in need? What about those outside the church? People who don't look like you, people who don't think like you, people who don't believe what you believe, will you help people who are different than you? Well, at the point 
was not clear enough, Jesus asked a final question to press his point deep into the mind of the scribe and his listeners, and to be honest, for us here today as well. Verse 36 and 37, he asked him, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the scribe says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So the answer is obvious. This is not a complicated question. The neighbor is the one who shows mercy. And it's interesting, even in the scribe's answer, he could not bring himself to say the Samaritan. That would have been the more simple way and the more natural way to answer this question. His bigotry and his prejudices remain. Nonetheless, Jesus commands him to go and to do the same as a Samaritan. He is to go and he is to show mercy to all, to have compassion. Not simply feel compassion, but to be moved by compassion, to tangibly and practically care for others in need. It's interesting that the scribe asked Jesus the question, who is my neighbor? It's a question that's, to be honest, the title of the series that we're starting. But Jesus answers the question, whose neighbor are you? Jesus turns the question around on the student. And so the point of his parable, the reason it is told, is to help you and I remember that we are to be good, compassionate neighbors to all. Regardless of color, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender or religious affiliation, whatever. We are not to figure out who our neighbors are. We are to be neighbors to all. Now, through being on staff here at North Wake, I get to hear a lot of stories of compassion that many of you might not be privy to, kind of instances where people in the church uh, have identified a need of another, and they help in very tangible ways. And I, I want to mention a current example, which I think epitomizes Jesus' point here, of being a good, compassionate neighbor who sacrificially gives to those in need. One of our church members is in need of a kidney transplant. The last report I received was that his kidney was functioning at about 7%, which necessitated beginning dialysis, daily dialysis. Now, what this entails for this young couple in their 30s with four young children is more than most of us can imagine. Financial strains, daily dialysis, messed up work schedule, fear, pain. But what's easy to identify is that this person is in desperate need of a kidney transplant. Well, this need was made known to our church. And very quickly, from within this church, four people contacted this couple and said, I am willing to give my kidney. I love this church. This church shows compassion. To be honest, I can't envision a more tangible expression of compassion. And when I asked them if I could share their story this morning, this is what they wrote. They said, words are insufficient to express our thankfulness to these four people who have chosen to love us in such an incredibly sacrificial way. It is an act that is truly selfless because there is no way we could ever pay back such a kindness. 
Wow. What an expression of compassion. What good neighbors these people are willing to be. They saw someone in great physical need. And they are literally willing to give up of themselves, to give an organ to care for someone else, to meet that need. This only comes from a heart of compassion, a life that has been transformed by the gospel, a life that no longer lives for self but lives to love God and to love others. It epitomizes a good, compassionate neighbor. Now, we are in a series here at the church on evangelism, loving our neighbors. And so I want to talk briefly about what this means and how this affects our evangelism. For we have been reminded this morning that we are called to be loving, compassionate neighbors to all. And in the the parable, the Samaritan, by his actions, demonstrates his compassion when he came to the aid of a half-dead man. To be honest, you and I encounter something similar, even worse, on a more frequent basis than we ever realize. Turn with me quickly in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. The passage will be behind us, but I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles there with me. Ephesians chapter 2, I'll start reading in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." So according to this passage, specifically verse 1, the reality is every person that you and I know who does not have an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ through faith is spiritually dead. They are on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho and they are left for dead. Ephesians 2.3 tells us that not only are they dead, but they are children of wrath. People who will one day experience the full wrath of God for eternity unless they repent and believe in Christ. So apart from Christ, our neighbors are far worse off than the man on the side of the road who was left for dead. They are dead and under the wrath of God. They are in the worst possible danger and they don't even know it but we have good news the passage does not end there Ephesians 2 4 says this but God being rich in mercy there's that word again mercy the same word used in Luke 10 37 but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness 
toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, the good news is that God is a merciful God, and He has great love. And God's compassion and love moved Him to action. God came as a man, fully man and fully God, Jesus the incarnate one. He lived a sinless life, and he died a gruesome death on the cross. And he fully absorbed the wrath of God the Father for every sinner who would receive him. So instead of wrath, your unbelieving friends, family, co-workers, neighbors can be shown the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness for eternity. So this compassionate God has chosen that his compassionate people would share his compassionate message. I think that one's worth saying one more time. This compassionate God has chosen that his compassionate people would share his compassionate message. For compassion is at the heart of all evangelism. We show our compassion to others out of the compassion that we have been shown. So only one question remains, church. What will you do? Will you pass your unbelieving neighbors on the opposite side of the road? Will you leave them half dead? Or will you approach them in compassion? Will you overcome your own fears out of a heart of compassion and share the good news which has the power to make them alive in Christ Jesus? Remember that true compassion requires action or it is not compassion at all. Our compassion for our neighbors requires that we share the great hope of the gospel with them. So church, as we have been reminded this morning by a parable that is supposed to be an anchor in our lives, a sign that reminds us of what we have been called to be about. Will you be moved with compassion to meet the tangible needs of those in the church and those outside the church? To be good neighbors to all. Will you leave here today and be compassionate neighbors who share the compassionate message of our compassionate God? Praise team is going to come up. And I just want to provide an opportunity for us to, as a song is being sung, to come and pray.